RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, a few weeks ago, you might remember if you're listening to this program, we had Ashley Church in to talk about the state of the property market. And there was yeah, a whole range of opinions came back uh, after that chat. Ashley returns to Reality Check Radio, this time to talk about the state of the media. Ashley, welcome back. Good to have you. Thanks, Paul. Good to be back. Okay, yeah, well, there was quite a range of views expressed after we chatted about the uh, real estate uh, market. I'm pleased to hear it. I assume they weren't all flattering. Well, I mean, they were respectful, but there was some disagreement. There was some agreement, and there was some disagreement, and there was vehement disagreement among some. <laughs> so a range of opinions. Makes but a we're good here for everyone, so... You know, it doesn't matter as long as it's uh, rational and respectful. Well, it doesn't even need to be rational, actually, probably. Anyway, but here we're talking about the state of the media. And I think um, this is a very timely chat because there are some issues that have come up recently that probably gives us some directional, you know, pointers as to where things are. So where should we where should we start, Ashley? Where would you like to start? Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting topic, and there's been a, a I think probably a growing uh, view over the last couple of years. Not that it's new, but but probably since 2020 and the whole COVID thing, there's been a growing view that there is a, uh, a quite a marked bias in the media uh, towards, for want of a better term, left wing causes. Yeah, um, and and that's come about I think partly as a result of kind of this whole concept of an approved narrative that came about during COVID, which was 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 um, championed by Adern and her daily soapbox put soapbox presentations at 1 p.m. on TV. But I think it's important to to just remember, Paul, just to put this thing in some sort of context, that the idea of of an approved narrative, an approved uh, authoritative narrative, is not actually new. It's been around for as long as I can remember and probably as long as media has existed, in as much as there is always, if you like, a a view that society kind of gets behind and that becomes the, 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 the sort of the media template for the lens through which stories are interpreted printed, et cetera. Um, but what's changed is that, that that's different to what it was when you and I were young. So, you know, you go back to the 50s, it was God, King and Country, which was kind of the lens through which all uh, media was 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 skewed. Um, in more recent years, it's been probably kind of a centre-right, centre-left narrative, which has been around some stuff which there's been reasonably universal agreement on amongst most Kiwis. What's changed now is that that narrative's changed. It's it's a different narrative to what it was even four or five years ago, and and I think it's probably fair to say that there, there there certainly is a more pronounced bias than there has previously been. But I think if you analyse it and you stand back and actually have a look at it, you can you can start to understand why that bias has become become so exaggerated. And the first of these, and I'm going to be interested in your view on this. The first of them is this thing called the Public Interest Journalism Fund, um, which was introduced. If you listen to Willie Jackson. Um, Willie Jackson would tell you that the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which was a fund of $55 million, which was set up to support media organisations, was introduced in the wake of, and people will remember this four or five years ago, um, the quite large structural changes which took place with the introduction of companies like Facebook, well, not the introduction, but, but the incursion of companies like Facebook and Google into the New Zealand media market and the fact that they were taking the lion's share of advertising revenue. And so you remember at the time that NZ, uh, me. Uh, tried to purchase uh, stuff that the Commerce Commission stopped them from doing that. And so there were some real concerns at the time that the media weren't going to survive and that we weren't going to have a a, 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 a media 
uh, in New Zealand that was going to be able to compete against some of those larger international organisations. And so the the argument is that the PIJF was introduced basically to make sure that that, that those media organisations survived and did that by by providing funding to certain organisations. It was what that was overlaid with, which I think gave people some cause for, for concern. And it was overlaid with some criteria that the organisations which applied for and were successful in achieving those grants were required to meet. And there were conditions in respect of not just uh, the, the the sort of the general environment around what they could say, but actually the narrative that they could take. And that concerned people. And I think it concerned people quite reasonably. Now, it's interesting when you listen to Jackson, he will argue that it was never about that. It was always about supporting media organisations. And I saw some stuff from the, um, the head of uh, New Zealand On Air. Uh, recently, and her argument is: Look, this isn't new. There's, there's always been uh, a, a government funding, state funding for for media in the form of New Zealand on 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 air. This is just a specific thing that was introduced um, to, to deal with that issue that I spoke about a few moments ago. And she tried to explain away some of the requirements around, for example, uh, the the narrative around the treaty. Yeah. Um, but when you look at what's actually happened, and when you look at uh, some of the requirements on, on organisations that have achieved this funding, it's quite clear that it goes beyond that. And it's actually quite specific in respect of the position that organisations must, must take if they're actually going to achieve this funding. So I think in the first instance, that's that's actually had quite a, a, a concerning effect on media. And it's interesting to note that if it was just about supporting media organisations, then Radio New Zealand and TVNZ, both of which applied for and achieved funding under it, never would have been able to apply because they already get state funding. Yeah, of course. So it was always just about uh, uh, maintaining the commercial integrity of, of media organisations in New Zealand, and it would have only been available to private organisations. That wasn't the case. It was it was a template by which all organisations were directed in the position that they could take on certain issues. Yeah, well, it was known that uh, RNZ um, wanted more money, you know, um, probably uh, at the time they were asking for some millions more. But it seems that not only was there a narrative that was followed, but there to me, there was active cancelling of any other message. Totally. I've worked in news, newsrooms for a long time. I've never seen that before. I've never seen that active cancelling and almost almost sort of going after, like in some sort of dogfight almost, people who are against the narrative. That's the first time I've seen that at any sort of level, I've got to say. That's interesting. This comes into this whole issue around free speech and the the imposition of so-called hate speech laws, which aren't actually hate speech laws. They're, they're laws that are designed to try and impose control over what people can and can't say. And I think probably the most um, gratuitous uh, version of that recently was the stuff that happened around the Parker Posey visit to New Zealand um, and and the, the shutting down both physically by the protesters and also by the New Zealand media of, of any attempt to have a narrative that which, which was against the status quo. Now, what's always been interesting in that debate to me, wherever you might sit on it, um, look, if you want to be involved in the whole transgender thing, you want to transition to another, that, fill your boots, that's your business, it's got sure. nothing to do with me, that's between. But those rights haven't aren't new. It's not as if society has suddenly decided that that, that those rights should be, should be given to, to folk that didn't previously have them. You've been able to do that for... 20, 30, 40, 50 yeah, years. That's what's right. changed, as you quite rightly, quite correctly state, what's changed is that the, the debate now is about trying to close down any counter narrative. The debate now is about saying, if you don't agree with that view, then you're, you're not going to be able to have a platform where you can articulate your counter view to it. And that's what the Parker Posey thing was about. It was about this whole 
um, stopping of a narrative which was counter to to what I described before as an approved narrative. And that really concerns me because that's that's one such example, but it's happening across a whole range of other things in society. The 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 cancelling of Dr. Zeus um, and, and yes. a range of other stuff that's taken place over the last two or three years. And that's a concerning development because it, it makes the media not just a, a, a narrator, but but an active participant in, in, in those social changes, be they right or wrong. Um, yeah, well, and- uh, that Posey Parker thing, you've just reminded me, yep. one of the, the glaring things there, which should have rung alarm bells for a lot of people, but didn't, and I think it's because they're sort of kind of used to this now, and that is, she was always described in any media I saw, media I saw, as an anti-trans activist. Now she never ever said she was that. No, she was. She always said that. she was pro, speak up for women. Yep. Now in the newsroom of old, where I used to work, if you'd characterized it in that way, you would be you would get a dressing down yep. from the chief reporter because yep. they would say that's not a fact. That's a lie. What are you doing lying? We don't do that for a business. It would have been jumped on um, from a great height. Mm. And that's just at first base you're getting that. And, you know, um, and the question is, be interesting at your view, whoever writes that, are they believing that? Because they obviously haven't done any looking into it. They haven't actually asked the person themselves, yet they're willing to mischaracterize in that way, which already loads the whole thing. And it was everyone from papers to TVNZ to RNZ to all of them. And that's that's kind of wicked, actually. That comes. To, that really raises another one of the big changes that's taken place in media in this country, really over the last two or three years. It's probably be, existed for longer, but it's become much more apparent. And that's this concept of of editorializing news. So, it, by which I mean, in the past, um, it was the job of a journalist, the job of a reporter, to report on the facts of a situation, and they would either do that by drawing um, releases from from offshore and international news or by doing the same thing with New Zealand news. So, so the role of a reporter was to make sure that they were reporting the facts of the, of the situation as they existed. And, and so although you would have had people with a political viewpoint, particularly young journalists who, who, who got, in a lot of cases, quite an idealistic view of the world, um, their ability to actually put that into the story was limited because their, their role was to basically just report on what had happened. And it wasn't until you got a bit older and a bit wiser and a bit more experienced that you got into roles where you started to have the ability to maybe have some opinion. And it was very clear that that was opinion and that it wasn't actually the news, that it was a viewpoint. Yeah, that, that's true. That, it what's was made obvious. Now, but what's happening now is that the stuff that we're reading that in the past would have been objective news is now editorialised with the view of the, the person writing it. So it's overlaid with a particular perspective. So to answer the question that you you raised before, yeah, I do think they believe, but, but I think they've always believed it. What's, what's different here is that they now actually have the ability to put their belief, their viewpoint, into the story itself in order to shape and colour the way that it's viewed. Yeah, and people hear that, and I've heard people say, oh, oh that, she's that uh, anti-trans activist, and I'm thinking, I know where you heard that. Yep, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you really think that? Well, the truth is you don't actually know anything else. Uh, so I just think that's a bit dangerous. Yeah, it, it is. If I'm going to be fair, though, there is a tendency for that to happen on both sides of the political fence. So as much as, um, and you and I probably share similar views in terms of where we sit politically, but the same thing does also happen on the right. And there's a little bit of a propensity at the moment, and this is probably happening more as a result of the rejection of mainstream media, because there's a there's there's a sort of a mass exodus of 
of of of reading newspapers and watching the, the traditional television news and finding it from other sources. And that's doing the same thing to some degree. It's colouring people's viewpoints on stuff that's not necessarily true, but it's coming from these alternative sources and those alternative narratives. And I suspect that that's probably equally concerning because you end up with a society over a period of time which is quite polarised in its yeah. view of, of the same events meaning quite different things. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the idea now is to get in as wide a source yes. of information as possible, sift through it, triangulate it, do whatever you have to do, and try and approximate what is most likely. Oh, I couldn't agree more. In fact, it's interesting you should say that, because one of the things I'm learning as I get older uh, is is that, you know, never believe the one source. Aggregate it from a variety of different sources. And when I was younger, I mean, I was very guilty, as I suppose a lot of young people are, of simply taking the first thing that I read and assuming that that was correct. And, you know, you can apply that to, you know, if you look at things like the whole narrative around climate change, which in my view is a religion, um, and and look at the views on that, a lot of the a lot of the narrative around that is 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 uh, accepted without any real criticism. It's basically taken as fact simply because it's said by an authority or or, or by somebody who sh- who should know better. Um, and so we end up with a situation where instead of people actually looking at that stuff and and, and looking at the wider context of what's going on in order to draw a reasonably informed um, position, they simply accept what they're told either at school or. Or, 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 or through people that that perhaps have heard it from a second or third party source, and that becomes the narrative rather than people actually doing investigation of their own. Well, Greta Thunberg is a good example of that. She said six years ago, about six and a half years ago, that we wouldn't be here now, <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that yeah. that was that alarmed a lot of people. I remember doing interviews um, with psychologists who were worried that. Um, kids were getting climate anxiety and and some were even self-harming as a result and that came out of those sort of comments yeah if you, and, if you want to have a bit of a laugh do do some research into the uh the media narratives over the last 20 years around the rising sea levels um so you go back 20 years and they'll talk about how within 10 years they were going to be up and by a meter and then so each time they get to that to that bench post and and nothing's changed sea levels are exactly the same they simply move it further forward um, and so, but but you have to do the critical analysis in order to actually find that. Because if you don't, you simply accept the headline that comes out in the day. Uh, and so, Oxfam are really guilty of that. Oxfam have kept moving it, I think, for the last twenty years, and unashamedly just changing the number every ten years or so in order to to sound as horrific and, and devastating as possible. Ask an old surfy mate. <laughs> I, I tell you that the water still comes up to where it used to at Lyle Bay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, there's that. But then, as Ian Wishart uncovered. When you've got media taking information from institutions, in this case, NIWA, and it turns out that the data that they're putting across as solid is anything but, and just digging around in late 1800 newspapers will reveal how bad weather has been in the past. You know, barometric pressures have been lower than um, they have um, many times in the last century. In the previous century, when records were being taken, turns out that records used to spin Cyclone Gabriel and it, the narrative that it's a consequence of t- climate change only went back to 1978. I was dancing in discos in 78, okay? That's not that long ago. So when you've got that double layer where you've got information that's already filtered and there to... Uh, push a narrative, then lay it on top of a news media who's going to push that narrative. You, you, you kind of, I mean, what can anyone do? You know. Well, I live in I live in, uh, and I'm coming to you from the Esk Valley, 
um, which is just out the window here, which was ground zero for Gates. Oh, Gabriel. there you go. Yeah, cool. I can tell you, and 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 there's devastation, and there still is. And you know, three months on, you there's still cars upturned, and 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 it's going to carnage. It's going to take a long time. But I did some research on this after Gabriel itself, because like you, like the, the narrative that came out quite quickly was to say that this was just another example of climate change and what devastating effects it was going to bring. Well, like, so so 2023, we've had the most most recent hurricane, uh, a cyclone. Could tell you when the, the previous one was 1988. Prior to that, 1963. Prior to that, 1938. 1938 was the big one, bigger than any of the others. Yeah. And 1897. That was not climate change, <laughs> or or if it was, it was natural climate change. It certainly wasn't carbon induced. And so that's the point. In, in the absence of knowing this, and and, it, and seriously, it doesn't take you much. Uh, checking online to find that out. That data is freely available. But in the absence of doing that, in the absence of it simply accepting the headline that tells you that it's climate change, people believe this nonsense. And that's the problem. And I, I, I say this, Paul, as somebody who doesn't deny that there's climate change. I just, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's got anything to do with carbon. Yeah. Um, and so my position is the climate's been changing for thousands of years. You've only got to go back through history and see that. Um, and it's a natural phenomenon, it's cyclic, and it will keep, will keep happening. What we're being asked to accept is this religion that it's being created, by, it's, it's, it's a consequence of something that we're doing, and that we have to quickly change those things and change the entire basis upon which economies are actually run in order to deal with this, this thing before it's too late. That's not proven. That isn't proven. How long can it run, though, like this, do you think? If people are scurrying away from mainstream media, you can keep giving it money, but that's like giving it life support. In the end, it's CPR, and then you got dead on arrival. So by the, time, by the time it's run its course, and it will, five years, 10 years, 15 years, by the time it's run its course, it will be more than amply replaced by something else just as ridiculous, but 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 promoted just as strongly. Right. Okay. Well, hopefully we're around long enough to know <laughs> if that one happens. Ask Greta Thunberg maybe if, if, right. if, if we've right. got that sort of time. Is there anything more you want to say about mainstream media or media as it is before we get on to talk about RNZ? Yeah, no, I think just the other two comments I was going to make was that was that the average age of journalists is dropping, but that's nothing new. That's the, I mean, the, there's always been a cohort of, of of young journalists. The difference is that they haven't had the ability to editorialise and impose their own viewpoint on this stuff in the past, um, and and that we should encourage journalists to have a viewpoint. That's that's a good thing, people. But 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 we should want them to develop in their career over time in order to temper that with some experience of the world and. You know some knowledge of the way that things actually work before they're actually able to influence the things that we read and for some people become the basis of how much they form their opinions. Another thing I would say about that is that I have noticed in my uh, span, just over 40 years of kind of doing this, is that the journalists that were being hired when I was first starting to hang around newsrooms, they hadn't come through universities. No. They come through polytechs and basically courses where you go out on the street, interview people, and and it wasn't at that level. With the commodification, is that the word of university courses, yep. where you're selling courses to people? You've you, there's inevitably a strong sales message, and and it seems to me the message is become a journalist. You can save the world. You know you could be the difference between reason and 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 whatever else, and that's sold to them very hard by people second third generation in this training system now. Yep, totally, 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 totally. And I, I like that word, the commoditization, because that's exactly what's taking place. It's it's a scary trend. What what I don't know, what what neither of us know is whether this is whether this is the beginning of a wave that's going to continue and get worse, 
or or whether there'll be a a reaction to this at some stage soon and a reversion back to a to a more objective media. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, if you look at um, the uh, information, um, you know disinformation talk recently and uh, the uh, consultation that's gone out from, I think, Ministry of Internal Affairs or Department of Internal Affairs on monitoring all media, sort of transferring the current checks and balances on the legacy media to all media. It just so happens that the ones that are funded and looked after news organisations won't be subject to this. Wow. Well, that's scary. That's overreach. That's big brother overreach. Well, you don't um, want to. You don't want to spoil your. You know, you don't want to take away the levers of information no, control. No, no. That's so. I hadn't seen that. Is that the same as? Because I saw recently that there is there is now some suggestion that there's going to be um, the imposition of hate speech laws around uh, social media companies. Yeah, there's that as well. Right. Um, but uh, but basically, okay. So we're obviously interested in this at Reality Check Radio because. At the moment, we're not subject to BSA because we're not using the transmission facilities or the airwaves, and that is a privilege, in a um, because it's a limited resource. So yeah, I mean, people same in the US with the FCC, you have to come up to certain standards, and that's why Howard Stern's not on the actual air anymore because he, he was he's too out that. there. He's on satellite now, and that's not that same commodity. So extending that policing over to all media and 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 the legacy operations qualify as news organizations but the new operations don't so it's it's kind of trying to head off at the pass that's frightening paul that's a frightening yeah. development potentially i think it is against anyway we'll watch that space mm. what did you make of that whole saga at rnz i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that well right so so as i said before that there's always been an approved narrative in media um accusations of a left-wing bias by radio new zealand are also uh not not new i mean I, when i was a kid i think we were referring to to radio new zealand as radio pravda as a sort of a you know a, a difference to its it's uh it, it's slant toward what was in those days the Soviet Union sort of sort of the communist bent. Um, it's it's transitioned obviously over the last few years in that regard, but it still comes across with a very sort of a, a sort of a left wing flavouring and its viewpoint on things a very sort of a virtue signalling position. So that's nothing new. The question around this is 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 this taking us to a whole new level of of bias within RNZ? Um, and is it the tip of an iceberg? Is this is this indicative of something much broader which is going on? Is it a, is it a cultural thing at RNZ, or is this a specific and and isolated incident? And the answer is I don't know. I've, I've done quite a bit of investigation into the guy himself. Um, and when you look back, so so what's happened is Radio New Zealand appear to have taken this seriously. The, there's an investigation going on by management, which has identified I think to date about 50 stories that he's tampered with. Um, and and editorialize to add a viewpoint or, or to take out a viewpoint which might favor a position he didn't agree with. And the boards also um, put in place their own investigation. So they brought in some seasoned journalists to also look at this to determine whether it's just an isolated incident or whether it's an endemic thing within the organization. But for me, I don't think that's enough. I, I think that the government needs to take, or a future government needs to take a much harder line on this, and there needs to be um, not just a full independent organisation from the top down, but some resulting action taken as a result of whatever's found from that. Because this is really concerning, the idea that a that a, a young journalist can, uh, with impunity, 
uh, add or dis- uh, subtract from stories in order to promote a particular narrative or to emphasise a particular viewpoint um, from Radio New Zealand, which is a state-funded organ, is a really, really concerning development. Yeah, it is, I guess, philosophically, but then here's the thing. Uh, the stories that were known about it um, first up, Ukraine, Russia related. Um, if you have an interest in this, and you do your own research, I'm sorry to say, again, and look at all points of information, you will know that RNZ has not been reporting truthfully that conflict in the first place. That is a greater issue, surely. Yeah, it depends on where you said. I mean, you and I probably have a different view on that. I've I've also sort of done a little bit of research into the Ukraine thing, and I come at it from a different perspective, and we could probably argue that, that, that one back and forth. Um, I th- and, but you're right, but you're right. There's two issues here. There's the... Is Radio New Zealand, and indeed are all New Zealand media reporting accurately on it? Well, you've got to go back to Trump derangement syndrome and what happened in 2016. Russia was so demonised in that, and it's turned out that it's all basically all BS. And I worked at RNZ at that time, so I knew what was going on. I was at the tip of the spear on news. There was rampant Trump um, derangement syndrome, not really based on anything real. And uh, I think that that has influenced the editorial and reporting line of this conflict because it's automatically assumed it's like orange man bad, Russian Mm. man bad. Mm. Um, Mm. That's quite a complicated story and we don't need to go through it all, but it's ironic that you're talking about, you know, rearranging chairs on on the Titanic. We can talk about the Titanic shortly, but already you've arranged the chairs before you've rearranged them through a narrative. So, so to, to, to finish off the point I was making, though, so, so I agree with you that we, we, need to, we need to look at the entire narrative and make sure that what's being reported is accurate. But to bring it back to the New Zealand Radio New Zealand context, putting aside personal preference in terms of the stories themselves, the idea, even if, let me put it another way, if this guy was saying stuff that was promoting a right-wing narrative and he was, he was editorialising stories in that respect, would we have a different view I personally wouldn't. I, oh, I I wouldn't either. I agree with you on that. No. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I think we've got to get that aspect of this whole thing right. We've got to make sure that it's an independent organ, that it's reporting facts, that we don't have the ability for somebody to put his or her viewpoint into it in order to skew the conversation in, in, in either direction. But you've got the head of Radio New Zealand describing information on Russia as Russian garbage. Yes. Well, what does he know? What oh, does he know? And that's a silly comment to make. He does protest too much. Why? Yeah, yeah. It, gives, it gives you some. In fact, when I made the comment before about the tip of the iceberg, that's probably an indicator that it is a, a larger cultural phenomenon than what we're dealing with with just this one independent activist. And and so that, for me, probably reinforces my viewpoint that Radio New Zealand needs to be completely reviewed from the top down. Um, is it even fit for purpose anymore? I mean, well, if, if, if the legacy role has been walked away from, is there any use in having it? I'm I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I'm quite right. <laughs> well, so no, I, okay. I let, let's say if you can't rely on it, or it's you know because it's publicly funded, it gets a lot of money. There yeah. are other good causes for money that could be spent in the community if it's not doing its core role. And I know what its core role used to be because I've been in and out of there since 1980, and and I think it is fair to say it has stepped away. Yeah. Um, when you step away. Are you useful anymore? Yeah, I mean, in my view, we should the, the, the idea of a publicly funded um, organisation that's commercial free is, is anathema. I mean, I, I, they, in my view, that they should be basically paying for their 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 lunch by 
by going through the same motions that commercial organisations have to. But if you're going to have one, if you're going to have a publicly funded radio station if you, or, or series of radio stations, if you're going to have publicly funded uh, TV stations, then, yeah, I agree with you completely. They either meet the original remit for which they were established or or you get rid of them and start with a clean sheet of paper. And clearly they stepped away from that remit, certainly in respect of this issue. And I would I, I would argue also in terms of the broader issue uh, or the broader issues, um, they were the mouthpiece of of, um, of the government when around COVID. Although they weren't alone in that, there were other media organisations also doing the same thing. Um, and they have traditionally, and, and that come, when it comes to left wing governments, they have traditionally been um, the the um, strong supporters of government policy and government initiatives. And and conversely, they've put the boot into governments that take conservative views on things. So when that's consistently happening over decades, you have to ask yourself whether they're actually doing the role for which they were originally established, which was to be an independent player. Be interesting to see what this inquiry, this look into it, comes up with, eh? And how how big the problem is or was. I think it'll be a whitewash, to be honest. I think the management report will come out and say this was isolated, and the guy will be moved on. Um, the the board report might be a little bit more objective, but it will still basically say that they've dealt with it and the issue's been addressed. And for me, that won't be enough. Okay. All right. We've all been fascinated with the story of the Titan sub <laughs> getting to the Titanic. How yeah. far down is it? Well, about four, well just under 4,000 uh, metres, I think, just under four kilometres. Wow. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> that's quite a drop. So the pressures are massive. It's dangerous territory, and it's only been the territory of, you know, governmental research, bathyscapes or whatever they call them. And uh, so this story has been quite a a fascinating one as it sort of played out. But it kind of came at a time where a bit of misdirection in the media probably benefited some. And you wonder about that. And I'm thinking about the Biden story that was coming up at the time. Uh, also, um, uh, other stories, uh, again, back to Ukraine, Ukraine not doing so well in their counteroffensive, taking huge losses, apparently. It's handy to have <laughs> another story that kind of blocks out the sun for a, a week or two. And I get why it's so fascinating and interesting. But it's it's quite an interesting story to look at, isn't it? Because it has so many different elements. There's a potential of misdirection in the media. There's this sort of weird cobbling together of technology and people putting this sub together using game controllers and stuff that's never been proven before. And then you've got very wealthy people who want to have the adventure of their life who are willing to you know, sign a waiver for their life to go down in this thing. What do you make of this story? Oh, well, like you, there's all sorts of strands at land. By the way, it's worth noting just in terms of the depth, just to put that in context. So four kilometres down, um, I understand that a that a submarine uh, doesn't go any go any lower than about uh, eight or nine hundred uh, meters. So, yeah. so about a quarter of the depth that this thing went to. So that gives you some idea. And you think of how sort of solid and bigger submarine is, and it's regarded as unsafe to get below about eight hundred meters. Um, so it gives you some idea of 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 the pressures. Two hundred atmospheres, I believe. Two hundred. Amazing, yeah. amazing. And as you say, and again, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist, and I certainly wouldn't want to pass judgment on the rights and wrongs of it. But I understand this thing was sort of a, a, a composite of titanium and um, carbon fiber, as opposed to some of the previous um, uh, vessels that have been used for that purpose, which have been solid steel. So, so, and obviously a lot heavier. Yeah. Um, and so there's some debate at the moment, and I think you've got some views on this, Paul, around. 
whether or not that was sustainable and whether pressures were going to be on that and whether or not this was just an accident waiting to happen. Um, conversely, it's interesting that people like uh, John uh, James Cameron have been almost twice as depth in, in, in the Mariana Trench in, in vessels that have been arguably stronger because they've been constructed of, of more enduring um, materials. But to come back to the issue you're asking about whether it's sort of subterfuge around um, um, sort of broader issues that are going on, I struggle with that. I think that's a stretch. <laughs> doesn't mean it's wrong, but it would if it was the case, it would be very opportunistic um, because nobody could have known that this was going to happen. It would, it would also mean that the... Uh, that the Navy would have had to have been complicit in the subterfuge that they would have, because, sorry, just to be clear, the the inference is that, uh, that Biden knew that the implosion had taken place, I think, three or four days before it actually became public, and that he withheld that uh, because that maintained the media fascination and people yep. kept being interested in it because they thought people that, that they might be found alive, and that had that information been made available earlier, that the uh, media interest would have died and it would have gone back onto things like, for example, a Hunter Biden case. So do I believe that it's a stretch for me? Uh, I'm not saying that doesn't happen, um, but in this particular instance, I, I, I find it difficult. I, I mean, there, there are other cases clearly in international news where, where techniques of that kind do take place. I'm just not sure that this was one of them. But you might have a different view on that, Paul. Well, it would make sense for the media organisations to let it go as long as possible because that's listeners, clicks, yeah. advertising revenue and all of that. And listening to James Cameron, um, he said that he knew from the moment he heard about this that they were gone instantaneously. There was a, if we're to believe the reporting, a noise picked up by hydrophones. Now, it's it was. pretty it was. obvious that the US Navy and the Russians too will have hydrophones placed around the the show because they want to pick up subs and everything coming into territorial waters, etc. And alerting um, the media to that too early is basically telling your adversary <laughs> that you're listening and that it's within a certain range, I guess, of that site. So maybe that's a confidential thing. Yeah. But um, it, it did appear that, that there was instantaneous knowledge that they were gone about 90 hours before. <laughs> It does raise, I mean, I suppose for me what it does raise is the more legitimate question of, of media interference um, at either a, a, a national or an international level to divert commentary away from issues or toward issues that are, and I, and I certainly accept that that happens. I don't think that's, I don't think that's in doubt from any objective observer, um, but there are things that have taken place certainly over the past three or four years where there's been a particular narrative and that's been pushed or manipulated in a particular way. Um, I just struggle with this one. I just struggle with this yeah. one. As I say, it would have, if if it was the case here, it would have been entirely opportunistic because nobody could have known in advance that this was going to happen. Um, so you could happened. once you knew it had happened, though, then you can use it. That's true. That is true. And so there's that element of doubt there that you could probably argue that maybe that had been the case. I I, I think I probably would agree with you in the sense that um, I, I I I suspect that Biden probably wasn't unhappy. And I don't mean then that, that sounds crass, and I don't mean it to, but wasn't unhappy that there was a diversion away from from other issues. Although as I understand it, because the woman who raised this, uh, Marsha or Martha Blackburn, who's a Republican senator, yep. in states, I think from Tennessee or Kentucky. Apologies if I've got one of those wrong. And I know that one of the inferences that she raised was that this had taken place over the same period of time that the IRS investigations against Hunter Biden were taking place. In fact, those investigations were several weeks ago. So that wasn't yep. true. So if that bit wasn't true, what other bits weren't true as well? I'd, I'd want to be very sure of my facts before I took a strong opinion on that. Um, though that Hunter Biden story is interesting because on one hand, 
again, it's a partisan thing. You've got Trump indicted for, yes, you know, well, how serious are those? I mean, apparently Joe had the, the even more classified documents sitting in his garage with a Corvette where Hunter had access to them, by the way, it seems. But um, you've got all this stuff on the Biden laptop. It seems to be real. Um, you've got WhatsApp messages putting dad in the room with you, shaking down um, the <laughs> the head of the Chinese um, intelligence agency, I think, but also some kind of fund uh, manager. There's probably a front. But, uh, you know, tr- it's Trump, Trump, Trump still. Yet, you know, you could argue that this is serious espionage. Espionage has been going on. Pay for play at that level is so corrosive to a country. It's banana republic stuff. Yet, it hasn't had the same mainstream media. But doesn't that feed into what we talked about earlier? Doesn't that isn't that reflective of that left wing bias that we talked about before? So that's not so much a conspiracy. That's simply a reflection of the fact that we've got a media that's got a bias, and we've got journo's who've got a particular political preference. But how can you ignore a WhatsApp message? Oh no, I agree. No, but I mean, how, sorry, what world are you living in? Yeah, yeah. That's the, but the point I'm making is that that's that, I don't know that that's necessarily covert. It's simply reflective of the fact that we've got a media. Incidentally, um, Family First. I don't know whether you saw um, Family First about three months ago, and I think they were using somebody else's data. Um, produced some some quite interesting stats on the on the political bias of journalists within the New Zealand media, and it was overwhelmingly. I think it was about sort of fifteen percent had a a mild or a, or or, or a medium right-wing bias, and all the rest of them were progressively more and more left. Yeah, I think it was 73% That's or right. 78%. Yeah, it was yeah, quite, a, yeah. quite a figure. So the point I'm making in respect of that is that is that I don't think this is necessarily subversive. I think it's a reflection of the fact that we've got this this overwhelming left-wing bias in our media, which is probably reflective of the fact that it's, it's populated by and large by young people, um, and that's impacting on what's being reported and the way in which it's being reported to us. So, so all of these other things are simply... Um, um, symptomatic of that of that broader bias, and I don't know whether that's uh, this is going to surprise you. I don't know whether to be concerned about that or not, because I do know that 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 as journalists age, like the rest of us, they tend to become more right wing in their their out. Yeah, but they move out. They go to PR. They do. They do. They go to PR, or they set up, or they set up their own stations, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You. yeah. Um, but it, it, so so the question is: Is this something that needs to be fixed? In which case it means, do you need to actually be doing sort of almost a political check on who you employ to make sure that you've got a fair balance of both? Or do you simply accept that this is the ebb and flow of society and that it's always been this way? Well, I just go back to the experience of old, and there were plenty of lefty journalists back then too. Well, there but, absolutely were. But I do remember, and I remember some in particular, real characters that are not around anymore, they would die before they would let the truth be suppressed yes. wherever the chips fell. And that know? was the difference. That was the difference. Yeah. And if truth is the casualty, man, I mean, it's like losing your compass. You, you, you don't know where you're going, right? I mean, it's, I don't know what you do, do about you, that. Do you blame the young journos for that? Because all young journos are going to have this idealistic view of the world. I Not mean, necessarily, I no. I, I blame who, who trained them and who's exactly. managing them day to day who should know better. But we're talking no. about multi-generational um, in this space. There are no old-timers from the old world kind of anymore. They're gone. No. no. I, I think of people like, and, and I, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but somebody like Bill Ralston, who I know quite well, 
and Bill started out, I think, with a it was just sort of a very idealistic view of the world, and that was reflective in his writings. And as, as he's got older, Bill's become, I wouldn't say he's a raging right-winger, but he's he's certainly become more centrist in his viewpoint. And I yeah. think he, he's, he's typical of, of, of a lot of journalists of that era that have sort of evolved over time. What's different is that when he was young, he would have had constraints put on what he could and couldn't do, and it's only as he got older that he had the ability to be sort of more open about his own viewpoint. That's no longer the case, and that comes back to what I talked about before around editorialising stories. That ability is there pretty much from day one for people with crazy loopy views that they've picked up from the university lecturer. Yeah, I, I don't know Bill personally, but I certainly know of his work, and I can imagine in what you just said, I think he did end up being head of TVNZ News for a while back in the, what would have been the 90s. I can't imagine him supporting a narrative if the facts didn't support it. Absolutely not. It was that sort of, and, and, and uh, uh, um, you know, that, that was the approach of, of I think most people during that era that it was much more, as you say, about the preservation of truth and making sure that that the truth would out rather than trying to colour the narrative to, to a particular um, preconceived viewpoint. Well, I think you're right. The space will start to be filled with alternatives and we're probably living proof of that. The platform's obviously uh, another um, part of that and there will be more. There's going to be more um, um, and on all sides, right? On all sides. So, Which is a good thing, by the way. I agree. I agree. May the best argument, the best ideas win, right? Absolutely. As long as they're true. As long as they're true. Or, or based on some sort of truth. Have we got anything more to say about any of the um, things we've been talking about? Any Anything you want to add to, to that? Oh, I think for both of us, Paul, we'll get off here and we'll go, damn, I forgot that particular uh, point I wanted to make. There'll be something else, but no doubt there'll be another opportunity to talk about it at some stage. But look, for me, the prevailing thing here is that um, we, we've had we've been very lucky in New Zealand and Australia and Canada and other nations in the West for for a very long time to have um, by and large a, a pretty straight media straight shooting media that's that's uh, brought the facts to people and to the extent that it has editorialised them it's made it very clear that it was doing that to a to a media now literally over the last three or four years which is this has really started to amplify where it's been much more difficult to actually work out what's fact and what's fiction when it comes to what's being reported. And that's being reflected, by the way, in confidence levels. We're seeing that confidence in media is dropping to all-time lows as a direct reflection of the fact that people no longer believe what they're seeing and hearing, and and that's a concern for a country with the, with the tradition that it's had. Um, okay, quick comment on that. It's election time and what, about 16, 15 weeks? Yep. I've asked uh, David Seymour about this. I've asked the Free Speech Union about this. I've asked anyone I can ask politically, Winston, you know, what are you going to, do you think this is a problem? You know, the, this, the, the way the media is operating at the moment and transmitting information to the public. Because it's only the only mass way that we can, you know, share an information in that way. And I was surprised to think that, or, or to hear, David Seymour didn't seem to have too much of a, a problem with it. He didn't think there was an issue. Free Speech Union, okay, they have some concerns, but they're not into any sort of enforcing standards. Okay, that's fair enough. Winston, obviously, we all know what Winston thinks about journalists and, and media, and he will say what he says. I guess the point I'm making is that there doesn't seem to be an urgency, in the people I've spoken to anyway, that this is a thing, that this we, we kind of need to get our arms around this at some point. But I think I understand why that is. And so here's the problem. And, and there's been talk in the past of things like legislation around truth and media and, 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 and stuff that which would enforce a narrative. The problem with that is all you're doing then is you're transferring the current problem 
to the other side of the political spectrum. So instead of being the enforcer for the left, you're being the enforcer for the right. And I suspect that's why the Free Speech Union, of which I was a founder member, and David Seymour are taking the view that they are. If you said, okay, this is a problem, what do you do to address it? Do you pass legislation that says that you've got to have a balance of viewpoints? That would be one approach. Do you pass legislation that says that you can't say certain things? Can't do that because that's an imposition on free speech, which all of us would be appalled by. So so it's, it's one thing to recognise that it's an issue. It's another thing to start finding legislative ways to deal with that, and I suspect that's why they're taking the position that they take. Um, so I, I think my view as much as I agree with everything that you just said, my view is that you suck it and see for a while, and if it continues to get worse, you maybe look at saying, is there a way to address this? But in the interests of free speech and living in a democratic society, you say that this is the swings and roundabouts of a way that uh, that free speech will go from time to time, and you assume that it's going to go, that the pendulum's going to swing back the other way. And I know that's not an answer to your question, but anything mm. legislative starts getting to concerning territory for me. Well, I, I guess I, I, yeah, I'm considering that, but the other thing is, and we've just talked about it before, let the free market judge it. That's true. Withdraw yeah. government yeah. media entities, they can get out of the space and, and they can go and deal with hip replacements, things like that. And people will make the, the the market will judge it, and people will will support what they feel they could support or otherwise, and there'll be the obvious choice. I think that's probably the way I I would seek to do it. And on that, we agree. It's probably a good note to end on, actually, because I agree with you on that. Okay. Oh, we agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ashley. Um, thanks for the chat. Really cool, and we'll we'll catch up again. Look forward to it, mate. Talk soon. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.